through the end of 2011 and into this year, if you remember, if you're here with us, I preached through the book of the Bible, Titus. We finished that. But if you can remember back to the beginning of chapter 3, you recall that Paul reminds us to be subject to rulers and authorities. And when we encounter that text, I made the point that Jesus himself instructs us to submit to civil authority, which is pretty staggering when you realize that Tiberius Caesar was emperor when Jesus lived. Tiberius was one of the most wicked and vile and depraved rulers ever. So the fact that Christ taught submission to the government when a guy like that was in charge says a lot. This morning we come to 1 Peter, and we come to an equally staggering text where where Peter likewise is going to tell us to submit to the governing authorities. What makes our passage even more really shocking is finding out who was Caesar when Peter was alive and writing 1 Peter. Who was Caesar? The answer was a man named Nero. Nero was the only Roman emperor actually worse than Tiberius Caesar. He was without a a doubt the most depraved Roman emperor ever and one of the worst in in all of history. Nero was born on December 15th, AD 37. He became emperor at the age of 17 upon the death of Claudius, the emperor, who was his adoptive father. And upon assuming rule, Nero made promises to be just and generous and merciful. He promised to lower taxes, help the military get their wages, and just help the commoner. He provided the people with entertainment, which back then, that was one of the jobs of the emperor, put on some gladiator shows. He gave gifts of food, clothes, gold, and more to the people. He, he didn't even go to war. He didn't feel the need to expand the empire. So far, sounds not too bad. Doesn't sound like a terrible guy, but, but not so fast. Because he had a dark side, a very dark side, all throughout his his time. Sometimes at night, Nero would disguise himself and, and prowl the streets looking for mischief. One of the games he played was to find people going home from dinner and stab them. He would break into stores, rob them, sell the goods, waste the money. As time went on, his vices became worse and worse. He stopped trying to hide them and deny them after a while. His sexual immorality was so deviant, it's, it's not even edifying for me to repeat. Just to give you a picture of his wickedness, I'll, I'll just say he was an adulterer, he was a rapist, he was a pedophile, and more. I'll just leave it at that. It's just the worst you can really imagine. Regarding finances, he believed money was made to be squandered. He was incredibly wasteful of the empire's treasury. He, he would never wear the same clothes twice. He never traveled with less than a thousand carriages. He would build buildings, tear them down just to rebuild them again. In in time, he spent so much of Rome's treasury, he couldn't afford to pay the military anymore. So he had to resort to robbery and blackmail. He would seize the estates of private citizens who showed any criticism of the empire, leaving them with, with nothing. And furthermore, although he didn't go to war, he was a man of great violence and bloodshed and treachery. He had the son of Claudius, remember his adoptive father, he had the son of Claudius poisoned and killed, fearing him to be a rival. And then he set his sights on his mother, Agrippina, which is one of his his greatest evils. They really never lived down, of course. He tried to poison her three times, but she took the antidote in advance. He rigged the ceiling of her bedroom to collapse while she was sleeping, but, but someone warned her. And she escaped. He even had a collapsible boat design that would sink. And he tricked her onto it, but she escaped by swimming. In the end, he got so frustrated, he just had her killed the old-fashioned way, I guess, and blamed someone else for the crime. Just about every family member or relative was killed off, especially those who could threaten his rule. And strangers didn't fare much better. He killed off much of the nobility and their children, Nothing really restrained him from, from bearing the sword anytime he wanted. Also, there was an ancient saying back then, which says, When I am dead, may fire consume the earth. Nero replied to this phrase and said, Why not while I yet live? And so he, he set fires. And most famously, he set fire to the city of Rome, 
wanting an excuse to rebuild large neighborhoods. And so mansions and these huge you know, ancient buildings were just burnt to the ground. They were destroyed in the fire. He wouldn't even allow people to search through the rubble of their own homes because he was taking the, whatever spoil was left for himself. Eventually, as some of you know, he blamed the Christians in Rome for these fires. So this is Nero, just part of it. This is just who this guy is. This is the Roman emperor ruling at the time that, that Peter writes First Peter. So what do you expect Peter to say about this guy? Or at the very least, what do you expect Peter to say to Christians living under his rule? You might expect him to take an antagonistic approach. You need to revolt. You need to rebel. You need to practice civil disobedience. You can't bear living under this, this tyrant. You have to do something about this. Rise up. Maybe expect him to, to take an escapist approach. You need to abandon Rome. Leave. Flee this empire. It's just too godless to live under. It can't be changed. Just, just leave. But it's so amazing. Peter he doesn't respond like this. And neither does Paul. Neither does Jesus. In fact, all over the New Testament, whether it's from Christ under Tiberius Caesar or from Peter and Paul under Nero, they, they say the same thing when it comes to how we should relate to the governing authorities. They say, submit. Fall in line. Respect their authority. Don't revolt. Don't disobey. Such a response, especially when you learn who was in charge, it, it makes you take a step back. It's like, well, wait a second, Peter. Do you, do you know what you're saying? Do, do you understand that Nero is, is the top guy here? You're telling us to submit even to someone like him? Do you know what you're saying? How, how can this be? Is there some sort of mistake? What does the Bible really say about how we should relate to governments, even wicked governments? This morning we're going to find out. We're going to see Peter's contribution to this subject, and we want to read our text for this morning. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue on as we make our way through this letter, and read along with me verses 13 through 17. He writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as, as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Just a quick word on the context. If you remember from last week, we just started a new section in First Peter. We started off at verse 11. He's switching gears here. In the first part of his letter, he, he was more concerned about how we as Christians relate to one another and to God. But now he, he's going to ask, you know, how should we relate to the world around us, to, to the unbelieving world around us? That's going to be the focus of this next section in 1 Peter. In verses 11 and 12, he gives an overall strategy for the task. It's a simple strategy for living as a Christian in a non-Christian world. This is God's strategy for both remaining unstained by the world and also for impacting the world. This strategy has two parts. Be free from the world's lusts and be godly in the world's eyes. God will use your upright behavior in an upside-down world to both honor his name and even to influence some people's salvation. And that was from last week. In the verses that follow now, Peter's going to take this general strategy for living the world and he's going to apply it to specific situations. It's really telling us in detail how to live. How do you live in the state? That's today. How do you live in, in the workplace? Well, that'll be next week. How do you live in the home? Even if you have an unbelieving spouse, that's in the weeks to come. But in essence, he wants to make sure we're following up our right doctrine that he's built with, with right practice and right application. 
Now today from our text, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, the focus, it's all on the state. How do we as Christians live in the state? How do we function as citizens in a country? Though some have unsuccessfully tried in the past, there, there never has really been a true biblical Christian state. It's never existed. Therefore, how do we live under unbelieving governments? Should we do everything they say? Should we do nothing they say? Should we be revolting and rebelling? Should we try and take over every political position possible? Should we be totally uninvolved and not vote? Most importantly, when the government tells us to do something that we don't really want to do, should we listen? What does God say? What is God's strategy for us living in the state? God's strategy in this section of 1 Peter follows a simple pattern which we learned last week. Just avoid what is wrong, do what is right. How simple is that? Avoid what is wrong, do what is right. Well, when it comes to your relationship to the authorities, this strategy takes the form of submission. In God's eyes, that is how you avoid what is wrong and do what is right in relationship to the state. God's strategy for how you relate to the state is fundamentally one of submission. Look at verse 13. There's just one main command in this paragraph, and it comes in verse 13. He says, submit. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. This is God's command to you in regards to governing authorities. It is to submit. We'll see a lot of this word submit. It's a big part of God's strategy in this section. Peter will use it again in verse 18 when when he's talking about how we relate in the workplace. And he'll use it again in chapter 3, verse 1, when he's talking about how we relate to the home. This word was originally a military term, meaning to arrange oneself under a commander in formation. In the military, I've heard that they do drills seeing how fast they can get into formation, how fast they can fall in line. That's a good picture of submission. It's falling into line. To submit is to subject yourself to another's authority. It's to fall in line under them such that you obey them. You respect them. It's a subordination of your authority and your will to theirs. And this is what's being commanded, that you subject your authority to to their authority, to, to the government's authority. Although authority can be abused, submission in and of itself is not a bad thing. God himself, within the three members of the Trinity, knows authority and submission. Submission is a reflection of order over chaos. It's, it's not a bad thing. And this is not the first time such a command is given to believers. In fact, the unanimous testimony of the New Testament is to call Christians to submit to rulers, to authorities, to the government. Let me just read for you Titus 3.1. He says, remind them, believers, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed. Romans 13.1, he says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And then Christ himself taught, Mark 12.17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The command and the strategy are quite simple. Submit. Listen to rulers. Respect the authority of the government. This is how God wants you as Christians to relate to and live in the state. But you may be thinking, wait wait a second, is there more here? Is that all we're told, just just submit, that's it? Are there qualifications here? Are there exceptions Why should you submit? Well, what's the purpose? Well, what is this strategy hoping to accomplish? Why is God telling us to do this? Oftentimes, it it doesn't seem right for us to submit to the government, especially when when they're wicked. What do you do then? It seems like we need just a little bit more instruction. Thankfully, though, Peter gives us some more instruction. 
Peter's not done. He, he proceeds to explain and flesh out this simple strategy of submitting to rule. And this is what I want us to turn our attention to now. We have the strategy. It's simple. Submit yourselves to every human institution. That's how God expects you to live in the state. But we need some further explanation if we we're, if were to really understand this and carry it out. And we're going to see that from our passage. So from 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, let, let's see five explanations of this submission strategy for Christians living in the state. Five explanations of this submission strategy for Christians living in the state. Now, we're going to see this command to submit fleshed out and just explained so that hopefully by the end we won't have any doubts about applying it and obeying it. And the first explanation is this, the cause of submission. Number one, the cause of submission. What is the motive behind this call to submit? What's the reason for it? Verse 13, look there. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The cause of submission is God. God. How? How how does this work? Well, two ways. First, you should submit because God has commanded it. That really should be enough. This is a command from God. Obedience in all forms should be driven by a love for God, a desire to please him. So if you want to please God in this respect, do what he says and submit to every human institution. But secondly, in a related manner, you should submit because you are actually under God's authority. And when you submit to human authority, what you're really doing is submitting to God's authority. You have to understand how, or rather, how authority works. As you know, God is the supreme authority in the universe. He's overall. He is the ultimate sovereign. But God has delegated some of his authority to the institution of government, to human rulers, in order to establish order on earth, and to restrain evil. This is why Paul in Romans 13 can speak of government as being a servant, a minister of God. So when you rebel against the government's authority, what you're really doing is rebelling against God's authority. Submission to government, then, it's really a submission to God issue. If you don't like submitting to the government, you've got a bigger problem, and that is submitting to God. Because his word is very clear. Imagine a small business. You have the owner. He owns everything. He, he's on top. He controls the, the operation. But the business is growing, so he hires a manager. And he delegates some of his authority to the manager. And so for all the employees under the manager, what does the owner expect of them? He expects them to do their job and to respect, submit to his manager. But what if the manager is a jerk? What if he's just un- you know, unreasonable, he's out of control, he's, he's harsh? Well, you just leave that to the owner. You, the employee, you're just expected to, to do what the manager says and to do your job. And it's the same with God in the institution of government. Yes, there, there are wicked governments, wicked managers, so to speak. The teaching of scripture is that you just... Leave that to God. He, he will judge, and we'll talk about them more as we go along. But instead, God calls you to trust him and even to submit to ungodly rulers. You need to remember, God is in control. Even wicked rulers are, are working out his plan, ultimately. He is in control. He has still, though, given to humans the authority to rule. And that's something that just must be respected. Here's a passage that will speak right to this. You can flip over with me if you like to Romans 13. We'll just look at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 13. Familiar to many of you, I, I trust. Here's a passage, a very related one, which really confirms everything we've just been saying. Submission is... Submission to government is a submission to God issue. God's authority is at stake. Verse 1, Romans 13. Every person, 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He continues through verse 7, but we'll stop there. But, but this is it. Your submission to the government is a submission to God issue. His authority is at stake. We'll see later how he has vested his authority in government. But here we begin to explain this strategy of submission when it comes to living in the state by first identifying the cause of such submission. What's the cause? The cause is God himself. The cause is God's command, God's authority. Both are at stake here. The issue is not whether you will submit to the government. The issue is whether you will submit to God. Number two, the second explanation we have is the object of submission. You can turn back to 1 Peter if you haven't. The object of submission. To whom exactly are you to submit yourself? Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. He says the object of your submission, generally speaking, is every human institution. This word for institution is used of things that God has created. And here... These human governments are viewed as being instituted by God himself. And indeed, scripture teaches that God himself is the author of the human institution of government. This doesn't mean God is to blame for the corruption, abuse, and wickedness that exists in governments. That's sin's fault. Anytime you take a man and put him in power and authority, there will be corruption. And since all men are sinners, every government will be corrupted. But the institution itself, the right and the ability of men to rule, was created by God. Let me ask, well, when? When did that happen? Well, right after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. Read that. God laid the the foundation and the framework for human government whereby he gave to mankind the authority to punish evildoers, even to take the life of murderers. Normally that's not okay. You can't take anyone's life. But God gave mankind the authority even to take life and uphold justice in the form of government. God gave man the authority to rule. And he did so to put a check on the widespread evil and chaos that ruled before the flood. Of course, God knew governments would be corrupted. He's putting sinners in in charge. But overall, are governments doing what they were created for? Are governments doing what God created them for? The answer is yes. You may be thinking, well, wait a second. Does this guy know what he's talking about? Does he read the newspaper? It doesn't seem that way. Does he not know how bad things are? You just have to understand, though, how truly bad things were before the flood. Think about this. Study Genesis that there was no government, no rule, no submission. Therefore, what happened? Man's sinful desires went unchecked and unrestrained. The result was anarchy and widespread violence. Just imagine this. Imagine a society where people stole from one another whenever they wanted. And they murdered one another for any reason. There's no government, no police, no military that can help you. Does that sound good to you? Imagine a society where your loved ones are just kidnapped and killed. There's no one to help you, and there's no one to punish those who have done wrong. Does that sound better? That's what it was like before the flood. The the land was filled with violence and bloodshed. And that's why God, in one part, instituted the flood, and secondly, instituted government to make sure society never degenerates back to that level. You say what you want, complain however much you want about world governments today. None of them are that bad. 
None are perfect. That's for sure. But as verse 14 says, generally speaking, evildoers are punished. And those who do right are praised. Hopefully this helps you understand our command here. This human institution of government was created by God. And though imperfect because of man's sin, it's far better than the alternative. And really bottom line though, you just need to respect the order that God has established. Keep in mind, there's no picking and choosing here. There's a key word in verse 13. It's every. Submit yourselves to every human institution. That doesn't mean you have to listen to every person you meet on the street, but but really anyone who's in authority, who's in a position of rule, whoever they are, however they got there. I know, I get it. It's tempting to justify disobedience to the government because you don't like who's in charge. You don't like that guy or that girl. You don't like the president. So it's tempting to justify disobedience. But again, when you have Peter and Paul and Jesus all telling Christians to submit to the government, when the likes of of Tiberius and Nero are in power, that excuse just, just doesn't work. Biblically speaking, the object of your submission is to all levels of government, No exceptions. Peter goes on in our verse to mention kings and governors as specific examples of ruling authorities. The king, of of course, was the supreme ruler in the land. The Romans Romans actually looked down on the term king. They didn't use the word king. They preferred a stronger term like, like emperor or Caesar. When you think of Caesar, you normally think of who? Julius Caesar. He actually was just the first. Everyone, every emperor after him was given the title Caesar. So they all were Caesars after that, starting with Augustus. Now Peter also mentions governors here as those sent by the king. The emperor obviously could not run the entire empire by himself. He needed regional rulers, regional directors to, to run for him. And these regional rulers were known as governors. That's not totally dissimilar from America. We have the commander-in-chief. The president, then each state has a governor to, to help run local affairs. Several Roman governors are mentioned in scripture. Pilate was a governor. Felix, Festus. These governors were tasked with keeping the peace. And then, of course, their, their most important job, collecting taxes. But the point here is that even to these regional governors, Christians were to submit. And the application today would be pretty clear. God expects you, as Christians in America, to to submit to all levels of our leadership, federal, state, even local, even police. Remember, we're talking here about how we as Christians should live in this state. What does God expect from us? The answer is to submit. Respect the government, which ultimately he has established in principle, And the object of this submission, then, is is any and all who rule, great or small, distant or local, irrespective of their personal wickedness. And so far, I trust, I hope this is clear. One more question I want to ask, though, before we move on. I mentioned it earlier. Are there any exceptions to this whole submit to government thing? Are there any exceptions to this? Is it just across the board, no matter what, do what they say? Here's the answer. There are no exceptions based on the person in authority. There are no exceptions based on the person in authority. If you don't like whoever wins the election in in November, too bad. It, It doesn't matter. That's not an excuse to disobey. However, there is an exception based on the exercise of government's authority. There is an exception based on the exercise of government's authority. Well, what is it? There, there's one exception. It's when the government tells you to sin. I trust, I hope most of you know this already, but it's when the government tells you to sin. Now, every government allows sin to one degree or another. Every government on earth allows sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when the government commands you or, or tells you to sin. And when that happens, there is a biblically justified civil disobedience. 
God then expects you to disobey. It's really the only time where God is pleased by your disobedience. You are ultimately to submit to God and to his law. When the government tells you to violate this, your submission should be a no-brainer. God first. The great part here is that Peter himself, who's writing First Peter, he gives us the chief example of civil disobedience in the New Testament. Perfect example. In fact, let's, let's go there. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 4. I'll show you the, these two passages where, where Peter himself leads the charge in really rebelling against government, but in a biblically justified manner. Acts chapter 4 will be our first one. Just briefly, on a couple of occasions, the apostles are brought before the ruling Jews, the Jewish authorities, for their preaching, for their witnessing, and so forth. They basically tell them to stop preaching the gospel, stop talking about Christ. That would be a sin. The apostles cannot stop. So what do they do? Do they listen to their authorities? Well, Acts 4. So pick it up at verse 18. And when they had summoned them, the apostles, that they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's a clear command from the authorities. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, Rather than to God, you be the judge. 4, verse 20. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He's saying, say what you want and blame us for not submitting to you, but we can't obey. We can't submit. We have to disobey here. And turn the page to Acts chapter 5, verse 28. History repeats itself a little bit. In fact, let's pick it up at verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, talking about the apostles again, saying, verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answer, and here it is, we must obey God rather than men. That's really all you need, verse 29. That's it right there. We must obey God rather than men. So when you have a conflict in submission, a conflict in obedience, who are you going to obey? I hope, at least now, it's a no-brainer for you. We must obey God rather than men. This is the one exception. But keep in mind that that's the only exception. Personal preference, you don't like the guys in charge, you don't like his agenda. Those aren't exceptions. I hope this helps you better comprehend and apply this command to submit. You may not like who's in power, you may not prefer his or her agenda, but unless they're commanding you to sin, God is commanding you to submit. Let's get back on track with our outline here. We're looking at these five explanations of this submission strategy for Christians living in the state. And we've covered the cause of submission, and the object of submission. Let's see number three now, the aim of submission. The aim of submission. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. The aim of submission. Look at verse 15. He says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men the aim or or the intent of our submission, is of course to glorify God. But but here in verse 15, he gives us another practical aim or a reason for our submission. He says, as you implement this strategy for living in the state, you may what? Silence the ignorance of foolish men. To silence here means to make someone incapable of responding. It's like you're totally deflating the opposition. They've got nothing left. Jesus was so great at silencing people. It's just fun to watch. You know, one time the Sadducees gathered, and they tried to trap him in a statement about the resurrection. But Matthew 22 says Jesus responded in such a way it just, he just silenced them. You know, one by one detractors would come. They would just assail Jesus, but one by one he would just shut them down and, and silence them. 
He responded so powerfully, so definitively, they just had nothing left to say. And they just became quiet. You can picture them retreating like, like a dog with its tail in between their legs. Or better yet, like a dog muzzled. In fact, this word for silence in verse 15 was used in ancient writings of, of muzzling a dog. And that's a good picture. Like a vicious dog that has been muzzled and just reduced to complacency. So will be those who oppose you. Only God does not call you to silence your opponents with words. Here it's with actions. God directs you to disarm Christianity's detractors by how you live, namely submissive, law-abiding lives. Who are these detractors or these opponents? Well, no one specifically is mentioned. Peter just calls them foolish men speaking in ignorance. This ignorance is not a lack of knowledge. It's a willful and hostile rejection of the truth. Ancient Christians, as you know, they they were plagued from attacks from all sides, both the Roman world and the Jewish world. And these attacks were unfounded. They were being accused from all over of being menaces to society, being insurrectionists, of being against the Roman Empire. But whatever false charges are brought against Christians... Peter's saying here, at the very least, don't substantiate them by how you act. And to the contrary, silence such critics by living rightly. And when it comes to the state, this takes a form of of obeying. Let the world see you obey the police officer and respect common laws. Let the world see you speak respectfully of elected officials, even when you don't agree with them, especially when you don't agree with them. Let the world see you live submissively to the government and then watch their attacks just fizzle away. That's how you do it. That's what God wants you to do. This is God's will that you do right in the form of submitting to government and through that, through your actions, you will silence the critics of the gospel. This is the aim of your submission. This is what your submission can accomplish and this is why it's a part of God's Strategy, the aim of submission. Number number four now. Fourth explanation, the abuse of submission. From verse 16, the abuse of submission. Look at verse 16. He says, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Here is not a direct command, It's an admonition to to live or to act as free men. Not talking about your civil freedom. Talking about your spiritual freedom. Saying act as free in Christ. And in Christ you are truly free from sin's power, sin's condemnation, sin's penalty, sin's bondage, sin's control. You're free in Christ and now you have a new liberty to actually enjoy life apart from sin. It's just that some people, however, misuse this liberty They abuse their freedom in Christ and instead turn it into a covering for evil. Their freedom in Christ becomes a smokescreen for sin. It's along these lines that some Christians can abuse this command to submit to government. This really gets played out in two ways. First, some Christians can misuse their freedom to wrongly justify civil disobedience. Some Christians can misuse their freedom to wrongly justify civil disobedience. You ever heard of the zealots? The Jewish zealots. Ever heard of them? It's a cool name, but they weren't that good. They were religious fanatics of their day. They're kind of like the Pharisees, but they were militant and violent. They were a Jewish sect that militantly opposed Roman rule. And unlike the Pharisees, they thought it was treason against God to pay tribute to Rome and to Caesar, since God alone was king. And so they took action. Some of them became assassins, known as the Sicarii, which meant dagger men. They would just kind of blend into a crowd and just stab Roman officers. And they were willing to fight to the death against Roman rule, and they did so, holding out in the fortress of Masada until AD 73, when they were wiped out by the Romans. But these zealots, they justified their insurrection because they thought of themselves as belonging to God. And Christians today, they can do the same thing. We belong to God, and more so, we're free in Christ. 
So how can we submit ourselves to the government's bondage? We're truly free in Christ, so we should be outside the authority of the world, right? And that's the type of faulty thinking that has led so-called Christians in the past to, to bomb abortion clinics or to subvert authority. This is using freedom as a covering for evil, and God does not approve. Government may do wicked things, but again, leave that to God to judge don't use your freedom in Christ to justify civil evil. There's a second way, though, that Christians today can abuse this command to submit. They can misuse their freedom to wrongly justify sin. They can misuse their freedom to wrongly justify sin. Not to say that you can never rightly justify sin, but I think you get the picture. What I mean by that is just because the state permits certain things doesn't make it okay. Now, for example, our country today, abortion, homosexuality, adultery, drunkenness, just for example, are a few sins that our state permits. And some Christians then mistake this to mean that they're okay. And you know how many college students I dealt with in the past who all of a sudden thought that drunkenness was okay because they turned 21. Now, I would talk to them. They would even justify their behavior saying, well, it's not like I'm breaking the law. What I'm doing is legal. I'm submitting to government. Do you see how that's just a smokescreen for evil, for sin? What such Christians are forgetting is that although they are free from sin in Christ, they're still slaves of God. Isn't that what the end of verse 16 says? You're, You're still a slave of God. Therefore, you should act like it, like a slave of righteousness. Don't get things backwards. Get this point. The freedom that you have in Christ, it's a freedom to do that which is right, not a freedom to do that which is wrong. See, you've always been free to do that which is wrong. But now in Christ, you're able to do that which is right, and so use that freedom rightly. And this includes here submitting to the government, not abusing this command to justify sin or disobedience. So this is our fourth explanation of this command to submit. Hopefully it's helping you avoid any misunderstandings or pitfalls that surround this strategy. And we're going to finish it up here with number five, that this last explanation, hopefully driving this, this strategy home, it's the application of submission. The application of submission. It comes in verse 17, so look there with me. Verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Some people look at verse 17, they're a little confused, at least upon first reading. Each of these four exhortations, they're pretty simple, they're pretty straightforward. But people ask, well, why are these here? Why are these being grouped together? Is there some rhyme or reason to this? What do these have to do with one another? Why does he start and end with honor? Seems a little counterintuitive. Well, we'll talk about this. The key to understanding verse 17 is simply to realize that Peter is applying everything he has said. It's all about treating people the way they should be treated. That's verse 17. It's about regarding people the way they should be regarded. How should you regard all people? With honor. How should you regard the brotherhood, fellow Christians, with love? How should you regard God with fear? How should you regard the king with honor? And this last exhortation, honor the king, fits right in with our main command, and it's really bringing us full circle. How should you regard the government with submission? How should you regard the king with honor? Well, let's briefly look at each of these four final commands. First, he says, honor all people. This is how you should treat, really, everyone with honor. And all people here means all people. It's everyone who's alive on the planet. Everyone is due respect and honor because even though they're sinful, everyone is still made in the image of God. And so you should still hold human life highly and you should treat people with honor. This doesn't mean you blindly tolerate everyone's sin. It just means that you should not discriminate, racism, sexism, dishonor people. It really just fits in with Christ's golden rule and treating others the way you would want to be treated. Honor all people. Secondly, Peter says, love the brotherhood. Whereas the world is due honor, 
fellow brothers and sisters are due love. This doesn't mean we don't love unbelievers. It just means that fellow Christians are due a higher love, a special love, a brotherly love. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's talking about mutual Christians. Or look at this, Galatians 6, 10 says, Let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So here he's saying believers, the brotherhood of the faith, should receive more than just honor, but also a special love. There should be a special love binding Christians together. Third, Peter says, fear God. God should be regarded with fear. And this is the common refrain from the Old Testament. You know this, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this fear here is not the, it's not the fear of, of terror or dread, like you might experience if you were you know, thrown into a shark tank. This is the fear of reverential awe. And this third exhortation, it's actually a subtle reminder that although you have an obligation to the state, you have a higher obligation to God. The point is, no one is to be feared. Not even the king, except God alone. Only God is to be feared. Like we talked about earlier, submission to the state is expected here, but it has its limits due to our greater allegiance and greater fear of God. That's why we, we can't listen to the state when it tells us to sin, because we fear God. But the significance of this call to fear God, it's not fully seen until you contrast it with the last one, with that fourth comment, which he says, honor the king. It's important because he's not saying, fear the king. That's significant. Because back then, the Romans, they regarded Caesar not as a man, but as a god. They were were deified. And so the, the the emperor was to be feared. But Peter, by saying, honor the king, what's he doing? He's putting Caesar on the level of everyone else. He's putting him on the level of any other human. How should you regard everyone? With honor. How should we regard the king? With honor. Caesar's just a man. And you honor him, even a special honor. He is king after all. But don't fear him. Don't revere him. Don't worship him. You fear God alone, but you still honor the king. Though today we aren't being pressured toward emperor worship, this final command to honor the king, it's still relevant. And it brings us, like I said, full circle. In the New Testament, their problem was that people, they gave the emperor too much reverence. Today, I think we give the emperor, the rulers, too little honor or reverence. And so take seriously this final command, this final charge to honor the king. All too often, Christians, they profess their submission to the government. They say, I respect my leaders. I respect the government. I do what the Bible says here. But then they proceed to to slander, to malign some political figure, to kind of trash talk them. The problem with this is that you're not only called to obey your leaders, you're also called to honor them. It's just like with children. Children, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, they're called to what? Verse 1, children are to obey their parents. Verse 2, they are to honor their parents. And picture this. Imagine you've got a teenager who obeys his parents. He's obedient but he hates them. He slanders them. He yells at them. He speaks harshly about them. He disrespects them at every turn. Is he he being a godly child? No, but wait, he's obedient. Well, okay, yeah, he's obedient, but he's not honoring his parents. Do you see the difference? This is required both of children and of citizens, both obedience and honor. And this strategy of submission to authorities ends then with a reminder to honor them as well. Don't slander. Don't malign any political figure. You can respectfully disagree with their views without slinging mud. There's a way to do that. In fact, if there's someone in politics that you don't like, that you don't support, before you're so quick to malign them, why don't you take the advice of 1 Timothy 2, 1 and pray for them as we're commanded to pray for our leaders. But this is it. How should we as Christians live, not just in the world, but in the state? God's strategy is to submit, to do what is right in the form of respecting authorities and honoring rulers. And this strategy is fleshed out with five explanations. The cause of this submission is God himself. This is how we submit to God, really. 
the object of the submission is to every human institution. God expects us to submit to all levels of authority. The aim of the submission is to prove ourselves upright in the world. This is how we silence the critics of the gospel. The abuse of the submission is sinful living, justified by our freedom in Christ, and that is not acceptable before the Lord. And finally, the application of the submission is simply to regard all people as they deserve. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. But overall, in a world that hates submission, that's the world we live in, a world that hates submission, we can really let our lights shine by living this strategy out. And so I urge you as you leave here this morning, especially as we're coming up on a major election, come November, it's a critical season right now, really apply what you've heard and consider how you think about government, how you submit to authority, and how you really honor those who rule. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. It's such a critical reminder as we are even now in our country dawning upon a major election that will certainly change the course of of this country. Help us to take seriously this call to submit to authority. Whoever wins, whatever happens, unless it's a command to sin, we are called to submit and to honor those who rule. Help us to do this. Help us to trust you. Oftentimes this is not easy. There are things that happen in government that we don't like, that don't make us comfortable. But help us to simply trust you, place our hope in you and in your government, which is to come and simply obey. Trust and obey as we sang earlier this morning. That's what we need to do. We pray for our government. We pray for our leaders. We pray for President Obama right now and whoever wins the election come November, that you would use them to rule rightly and justly. We pray for the salvation of any who rule, that they would bring Christian principles into their rule and lead in a manner worthy of of Christ's calling. But nonetheless, we want to reflect on what we've learned and just uh, consider how we can live in a manner respectful and honorable to those who rule. Thank you for this text and our time together. In your name we pray. Amen.